Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we're doing a listener request. Yay! Woo! Uh, we've had a lot of requests for Canadian history, but I have to credit listener Elion for this one, for the specific request. And it is also a two-parter. We had one recently on Rosa Parks. Uh, because, holy jeez, oh man, there is a lot of info on this one. Uh, even after we cut and edit for time, there's just a lot of stuff. Uh, so here in the U.S., I will be the first to say, we do not get enough history regarding Canada. I pretty much feel like our Canadian history is mostly about trading be- beaver pelts during the like colonial days. Yeah, and I even lived in the Pacific Northwest when I was elementary school age. And we got a little more than I was getting when I moved. I moved in fourth grade to Florida, mm-hmm. and there was none there. Well, but even so, it wasn't a significant amount. Yeah, and in a, in a kind of mea culpa moment, I think I can think of two times we have even mentioned Canada when we've been uh, on the podcast. And like one is that the Chief Seattle... Yeah, saw, saw Vancouver arrive, and then the other one was that uh, Sarah Emma Edmonds had been in Canada. <laughs> like, yeah, that's it. So we're sorry, which is a pity because Canada's lovely. That was not on purpose. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm betting that other countries probably also skim at best through a lot of Canadian history. Uh, so as I said, this one's from a listener request. It features a man who remains pretty polarizing and controversial even decades after his death. Uh, his career as a politician was one of extreme contrast, and there is ongoing debate over whether he was a hero or a villain, depending on the perspective of the person involved. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the controversies surrounding him, which make him look very villainous. Uh, but there are still people that are kind of reexamining his history and trying to put it in context and uh, trying to make it not so one-sided. I, it's hard to do, I think, depending on your kind of worldview. It's sometimes hard to see him as anything but a little bit unsettling. But we are talking about Maurice uh, Duplessis, who I have also heard him refer to as Duplessis by more sort of Americanized English. Uh, I'm going to try to go a little more French because that's just my inclination. Uh, he is often described as having something of a ruthless administration. Uh, however, he's also characterized when you see interviews with people in very disparate words, even though it's the same person talking about him. They'll talk about how ruthless and aggressive he was as a politician, but then they'll also call him sort of a lovable rogue. Uh, and there's even an instance that we'll talk about in the second part of a man that was in a legal battle with him that was sort of crazy, but he even sort of talks about him as a nice man. At the same time, they were really in this very lockhorn situation. Uh, it's very, very interesting. But he is, uh, you know, often described as something of a political beast. Uh, some people credit him with uniting the people of uh, Quebec and really bolstering French-Canadian nationalism when he was in, in office. And he served as premier of Quebec for longer than any other politician in the 20th century. He came to be called uh, by some le chef. And to some, uh, the time he held as the seat of premier in Quebec is also known as the Great Darkness. So even just in this brief intro, you can see that there is a lot of disparate language used to discuss him. There's definitely two sides. He was born on April 20th, 1890. And this was in Trois-Rivières, or 
Three Rivers, which is the second oldest city in what was once New France, founded in 1634. Yeah, the city was founded in, in 1634. Uh, he was the son of Noray Le Noblet du Plessis and Marie-Catherine Camille Bertigenet. His father, Neret, uh, was an attorney and a conservative politician. He served in provincial political offices until he became the mayor of Trois-Rivières in 1904. And after leaving politics, uh, Maurice's father became a superior court judge. So he definitely was raised in a conservative and political family. Yeah, They also had four daughters, Marguerite, Jean, Etienne, and Gabrielle. Maurice was the only son. And in 1898, Maurice attended boarding school at the College Notre Dame in Montreal, not to be confused with the American University. Or the cathedral. Right. Many things take that name. Uh, he excelled as a student, particularly in the area of debate, and that was a skill that served him his entire life. In 1902, he attended Seminaire de Saint-Joseph de Trois-Rivières to continue his studies. He enrolled in the Université Laval in Montreal to study law in 1910, following in his father's footsteps. And even when he was still a law student, he allegedly told friends that one day he would run the province. And Duplessis graduated law school in 1913, and shortly after, he partnered with a former fellow student, Edouard Langlois, to open a law practice. As an attorney... Duplessis focused more on civil law instead of criminal, and he generally represented average citizens. He did, however, make some really important connections while representing specific companies like the Shawinigan Water and Power Company. And so as his practice got bigger, his network did as well. But law was not uh, enough for him for very long, because in 1923, so 10 years after he had uh, graduated law school, Duplessis ran for political office for the first time as a conservative party candidate in Trois-Rivières. He did not win the election. He was defeated by a margin of 284 votes. In 1927, he made another run at public office, this time successfully, and he was elected to the Quebec Assembly. He spent the years between his first campaign and the second one just really meticulously planning, following his opponent, working on kind of a grassroots pre-campaign, and seeding a reputation as being the voice of the average person. And his election was significant because it broke a long line of liberal party wins for the electoral district. He was the first conservative to win an election there in Trois-Rivières in 27 years. And the initial victory of the Liberal Party in Trois-Rivières had actually been what ended his father's conservative political career. So now it was like the son sort of regained the ground that his parent had lost. So allegedly, uh, when Duplessis went to introduce himself to the rest of the assembly, which was largely liberal at the time, making him this conservative party outlier, He introduced himself as the future premier of Quebec. Yeah, his first speech before the legislative assembly uh, was, uh, by all accounts, quite uh, impressive. And it made a very strong impression on everyone who was there, including the premier of Quebec at the time, Louis-Alexandre Tassereau. During these early years as a member of the legislative assembly, Duplessis was also, uh, he started this rivalry that would go on for years. In July 1929, conservative leader Arthur Save resigned, and he was replaced by Camillian Hood from the electoral district of Montreal Samri. While Hood was much celebrated by party members, Duplessis believed him to be kind of a short timer, and he planned to kind of bide his time and wait for this guy to fall out of favor. He was reelected to his office. 
when the elections happened in 1931. And in that same series of elections, Hood lost his seat. Uh, Hood and several other conservatives had wanted to contest the elections, particularly those that were won by liberal party politicians. But Duplessis found himself on the opposite side of many of his conservative party members. He, along with a handful of like-minded conservatives, did not want the elections re-examined. They feared for the potential of having their own wins overturned. And in this instance, Duplessis' win was a very tight race. He had won by only 41 votes. So it does make sense that he wanted to let things stand as they were and kind of keep a recount out of the the situation. And Hood openly criticized Duplessis for this position. This recount effort was struck down. And when Hood lost the Montreal mayoral race in 1932, he resigned as head of the Conservative Party. Hood had handpicked his preferred successor, who was Charles Ernest Galt, but Galt was not to be party leader. That position went to Duplessis. Yeah, Duplessis officially became the leader of the Conservative Party in October of 1933, and he was backed largely by party members who favored provincial autonomy. As his political career grew, Duplessis dialed back his work as an attorney. He did his last case on January 4th, 1934, arguing on behalf of the Shawinigan Water and Power Company. Yep, that was the end of his work as a lawyer. Sort of. It gets called up a little bit later. Uh, Part of the reason that conservatives were gaining ground again in politics in Quebec at the time was that the Liberal Party, which had been in power for a long time, had developed some problems. Uh, There was a very serious economic crisis going on in Canada at this time, and it had really taken its toll on the party. The Techereau government was mired in criticisms of ineffectualness and some pretty serious accusations of corruption. In late 1933, several French-Canadian nationalists had published a document which was called the Programme de Restauration Sociale. It was a call to reform uh, that was informed largely by religious and specifically Roman Catholic social teachings. And it supported the bolstering of local industry and family farming rather than big business. And it really gained ground not only in the conservative party, but also with members of the liberal government that had grown a little disillusioned with some of the corruption and ineffectualness that we talked about a little while ago. And they really just felt like change needed to happen. So rallying around this idea of reform, the group formed the Action Liberale Nationale, offering labor reform, agricultural credits, a ministry of industry, and a promise to eradicate political corruption. And this uh, is a very interesting move on Duplessis' part that is precipitated by this. So just 18 days before the 1935 election, Duplessis, who had been with the Conservative Party up to this point, made an alliance with the Action Liberale Nationale, and they formed a larger group, the Union Nationale Duplessis-Gouin, which uh, the Duplessis-Gouin was named after Duplessis, obviously, and Sir Lomer-Gouin, who had been the leader of the ALN, and they were now in partnership with one another. So just for context, imagine if, you know, in any other election situation across the globe, two and a half weeks before the actual election, a politician said, by the way, I'm changing parties. It's almost unheard of. It's kind of wacky. I feel like I might have heard of something similar like once, but it was <laughs> was after the election. It's pretty unusual. Uh, and it's kind of brazen. He had been a little worried that, that this sort of new movement was going to appeal to some voters that, uh, you know, maybe didn't 
really agree with what was going on, but also weren't sure that they wanted to go conservative party 100%. Like, so he basically was like, I'm throwing in my lot with these guys. Yeah. So on election night, this newly formed party took 26 seats in the le- elections for the legislative assembly. Liberal Party candidates took 48 and conservative party candidates took 16. So we have this brand new party that took a significant chunk of seats. Yeah. And, you know, more seats than one of the established parties from before. Yeah. And the the Liberal Party, while they still took uh, more, many more seats, that was still a big reduction for them. And it um, it was a pretty significant change in how things were going. Uh, but of course, Duplessis, being the man he was, who was uh, pretty assertive, quickly took the role of leader in the Union Nationale from Gouin, and Gouin took a back seat. So as the Public Accounts Committee of the Legislative Assembly came together in 1936, Duplessis, going back to his roots as an attorney, appointed himself as a prosecutor against the Tachereau administration. And this administration had come back into power in 1935. The hearings did not go well for Tashiro, who resigned amid the scandal. And this whole event really increased Duplessis' standing with the public. Uh, he continued to build his political career as a reformer, a man of the people, a friend of agriculture, like kind of a salt-of-the-earth candidate who was going to root out the problems in government. So in 1936... The new party headed by Duplessis took 76 seats in the Legislative Assembly, with only 14 going to the Liberal Party. So the Union Nationale would wind up being the dominant political party for the next 18 years. And Duplessis was elected as the 16th Premier of Quebec. Uh, yeah, you'll notice that the Conservative Party had kind of vanished from those numbers because it had really lumped in with Union Nationale at that point. Uh, so, which gives you a sense of what a juggernaut this man was in terms of just... He's like a catamari of politics. He just keeps rolling and things go with him. So with that, we're going to pause for just a moment and take a word from our sponsor. So going back to Duplessis, we will talk a little bit about his first term as premier of Quebec. It was not exactly spectacular. Nope. Uh, But the Farm Credit Bureau and Fair Wages Commission were established and a pension program was put in place. So some things did happen. Yeah, he also uh, established during this time the so-called padlock law, which uh, it prohibited the use of any house for propagation of, quote, communism or Bolshevism by any means. And the padlock law also prohibited the printing and distribution of communist or Bolshevik materials. Uh, This law of course, suppressed free speech, and it was not written entirely clearly. So the lack of specificity that it contained made it easy to use this law to shut down information sharing by international trade unions. So it's uh, not really the greatest kind of shut down a lot of free speech. Yeah. Duplessis stood really firm against the idea of nationalized electricity or other direct governmental intervention in economic affairs. This wound up losing him the support of some of the members of the Action Liberal Nationale, which had followed him into the Union Nationale. Yeah, he really wanted the provinces to kind of carry a lot of their own uh, power in these matters. It, it's interesting because that's another thing that you'll hear discussed in a way that is very disparate. There, And I'll talk about that a little bit later, but... Uh, in many of his speeches that he gave during his first term, Duplessis would frequently repeat the following. Help yourself and heaven will help you. 
or help yourself and Union Nationale will help you. These two expressions are synonymous. That doesn't sound arrogant at all. (laughs) Uh, He had some doozy sort of catchphrases throughout the years. In September 1939, Duplessis made a very poor decision when he called a vote over participation in the war effort. He was really hoping to embarrass the Liberal Party, which supported participation by bringing up the idea of conscription. Yeah, and he really called this vote, like, in a hurry. It was like, we got to hurry and do this, because he kind of wanted to catch the Liberal Party off guard. But Liberal Party PR made it very clear that no soldiers should be forced to fight in Europe if uh, the vote to participate in the war effort passed. And as a consequence, Duplessis was kind of the one with egg on his face. He basically had saying, they're going to make you go do this. And they were like, no, we're not. And then he just stood there going, oh, <laughs> whoops. Uh, it did not look good for him at all. This feels to me like something that would go very differently today. Yeah. Because of the, the prevalence of the news media in covering uh, politics. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's someone can say something that's completely not true and have that interpreted in the press as being like, that's actually how it works. <laughs> So in the long, long before Internet news time, I think this would have gone very differently in a modern context. It absolutely would have. So shortly thereafter, in the October 1939 election, the Union Nationale fared very poorly and uh, Duplessis lost his seat as premier. And that for now is where we're actually going to pause and end the story. Uh, But in the next part, we're going to talk about how Duplessis spent his downtime out of office uh, and a few of the major scandals that then really happened during his time as premier, as well as his death. Uh, and I also have listener mail. Hooray! Uh, these are actually, first I'm going to talk about uh, both, there are two, they're both from Facebook, and they're both about our uh, mummification and embalming episode, which we got a lot of very interesting email about. We heard from a lot of people well, who, who embalm for their jobs. That got me so excited. And one of these is from one of those people. Uh, the first is from our listener, Annie, and she says, I just listened to the mummification and embalming episode. As a modern day embalmer, I am obviously fascinated by the history of what we do to preserve the deceased. Even as late as 150 years ago, the dead were eviscerated and embalmed from the inside out before it was patented in 1871 to use the body's own fluid system to disperse chemical. You could do several podcasts on post-ancient slash pre-modern embalming practices. I'm not sure I could be an embalmer if I had to preserve each organ separately. It's absolutely amazing. Anyway, good job on the mummification podcast. So yay, I just, I, little did I even think that we had embalmers that listened, but we have several, it turns out. Yeah. It's really cool. And, uh, we have another, also from Facebook message uh, from our listener Cecile about the same episode. And she says, in regards to the kidneys being left in the abdominal cavity in the embalming podcast, the kidneys are in the retroperitoneal space. They're separated from much of the main cavity by a membrane. Therefore, depending on how deep the initial incision, many times they would not be felt by someone just by touch through a superficial incision. This may be why they were often left in situ. Makes total sense. It totally does make sense. Uh, yeah, they felt around and probably thought they had cleared everything out because there was a membrane separating that yeah. section from the area where the kidneys were. I, I was reminded of when I had to study anatomy and physiology and kind of went, oh, yeah. yeah. I remember having to remember what stuff was retroperitoneal. We also got a couple of notes from people who, who pointed out that uh, embalming as it exists right now is mostly a 
like a primarily North American yeah. practice. Like today, embalming is not a, a global thing. But. Well, and there are even movements within North America and the U.S. to kind of do, quote, natural burials and yeah. skip that process. So Or cremate people, which... Yeah. That gets into a whole other, a whole other area thing. of your personal desires and beliefs. Yeah, well, and there are all kinds of other uh, burial rituals and practices that oh, are completely yeah. different from that all over the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, if you would like to write to us about embalming practices or Maurice Duplessis uh, or anything else, you can do so by writing us at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at mistinhistory uh, at com, or you can visit us on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the word Quebec. And there is a whole section all about the history and the geography and uh, all manner of aspects of that wonderful province. Uh, if you would like to learn about almost anything else your mind can conjure, you should do that at our website. And that website is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.